Good morning. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. Yes. All your Christmas shopping is already done, right? Check the box. Okay. Perfect. That is awesome. You know, I love, um, I love going out and buying gifts for people. I love going around with the kids and, you know, picking out gifts for, for, that, for, uh, for other people in the family. And that's a ton of fun. We just, like, closed off the Christmas shopping. It takes three trips for us going out because there's six of us. And then if each person buys a gift for the other people, and this is a lot of gifts. And that's what I was trying to explain to the banker when I was taking out the second mortgage. I was like, you don't understand what I have to do here to get Christmas done in this family. Christmas is seen, right, as the season of giving. And it's, it's fun to give. And let's be honest, it's okay. It's fun to receive. You could say yes to that. It's, it's okay, right? As long as you say yes to the giving part too. But it is fun to receive. Like I love when my kids buy me a gift, like a thoughtful gift. They're like, I bet dad would love this, right? And my kids oftentimes like buy me like joke gifts and that makes me happy too. But it's fun to give and it's fun to receive. And, and, and you know those friends or family members who like their gift is gift giving. Like they're so incredibly thoughtful with their gifts. It's the ones you open up and kind of everybody in the room goes, aww, right? Those gifts. I love opening up those gifts. Giving and receiving, gift giving is just a part of the season and it's incredibly enjoyable. Now there is a dark side <laughs> to the, all that giving frenzy. Because oftentimes what happens is in order to be so generous, we have to use our credit card, right? And so it's almost like that generosity and that giving actually leads to a lot of taking because that credit card company is going to say, hey, you don't have the means to be generous, so give with money you don't yet have and then we'll charge you interest later, right? So there's almost a giving to this season and a taking from this season. Did you know that in America, 25% of Americans, 25% are still paying off last year's Christmas? It's incredible, right? So there's almost like this dark side to the giving frenzy that this is a season of giving and a season of taking. It's fun to give gifts, but then we get that credit card statement in the mail and then we're like "Ooh, this is the season now of taking right what have I lost now you may be surprised but the biggest giver and taker of the Christmas season is the same person and it's not Santa Claus it's not the credit card company the biggest giver and taker of the Christmas season is Christ he gives significant amount of gifts. His gifts are outstanding. They're incredible. But there's also a taking that Christ does. And Mary had a very balanced view of both of these things. She saw the giving and the taking that her son would do. And I'm going to show you this in Luke chapter 1. We're looking at the song of Mary. We've kind of been studying that. We've been working through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So the writings of Luke. Luke wrote 
two books in the Bible, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And we've been taking different themes and kind of running them through those two books to see how they were, those concepts were taught by Jesus and then how those concepts kind of fleshed themselves out in the early church in the book of Acts. And so we decided that we wanted to land our Christmas series in the Gospel of Luke. And in that we've been studying really Mary's perspective in all of this. And so I want you to go to Luke chapter 1. We looked at this song yesterday, and this is kind of Mary's celebration song where she's rejoicing over the work that God was going to do in allowing her to be the mother of the Messiah. And we read through that whole song last week, and we went through the first part. But in the second part, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see a giving and taking that Mary is talking about. Because it's so easy for us to emphasize and highlight the generosity of Jesus, the, the giving of Jesus. Just like in the Christmas season, we think more about the gifts we give than the bills we have to pay in January because of the gifts we gave. But we need to have that balanced view, right? We need to see kind of that dark side of the giving frenzy. And Mary was able to have a balanced view of Jesus. She saw that her son would give gifts that, were, that surpassed any gift. At the same time, she also said that there would be a taking. So the big idea for today is this. If you write down one thing, I want you to write this down. Christ gives more than Santa and takes more than the Grinch. He gives more than Santa and takes more than the Grinch. She's going to illustrate some gifts that her son gives, again, that are just going to be way beyond the gifts that Santa could ever give. But she's also going to speak about the things that Christ takes away. And these are things that the Grinch could never steal. So let's look at this balanced kind of view that Mary has of her son, Jesus Christ. We're going to read through the whole song again and really focus on that second half. So look at verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. So you've seen in the first part, we talked about this. She's really emphasizing what has God done for me? And now she's going to branch out and talk about what God is going to do through Messiah. And really she's going to focus all the way to the future. So she's kind of broadening the scope. This is what God is doing, not just for me, what God is doing for the world and what he will do in the future. So let's look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever." Did you notice that the last couple of verses there, the last five or six verses, there's a contrast. He does this and he does this. He gives and he takes. He gives and he takes. He gives and he takes. This is where we get that idea that Christ gives more than Santa and takes more than the Grinch. Now before we get specifically to what does he give and what does he take, 
There are a couple of things we need to understand before we get there. First is the tense. What is the time concept that Mary is talking about? So look down again at your Bible, because we can miss this. It's kind of just, just English readers walking through this passage. The way this is translated can lead us to, uh, I think, an incorrect reading, an incorrect interpretation. So look down at your passage again, verse 55. Look at the tense of these verbs. The verb is the action. The tense would be if it's past, present, or future. That's how we understand tenses in the English language, not how they understood them in the Greek language or the Hebrew language. But let me show you. Let's look at these actions that are happening. He has shown strength. He has scattered. Verse 52. He has brought down and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled. And then verse 54. He has helped. Is that future tense, past tense, or present tense? Past tense. Now, as a normal, just normal English reading, we would say to ourselves, clearly this is talking about works that God has done before this point. But that's not the way we should understand this. That's a fair translation if we're just going to look at the basics of, of, of translating um, the Greek over into English. But I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but in, in language circles, especially when you talk about translation, sometimes the phrase is used, translation is treason. And, and it's an exaggeration. The idea is when you're speaking a language and you're presenting a concept, it's really hard at times to transfer concepts from one language to the other. Even if you're transferring the words over, there's ways we use speech, there's way we use language that sometimes does not translate over. Maybe you've been there with a family member or, or a friend and you're trying to translate in a situation and you just, you're kind of left puzzled like, I don't know how to say what he said to you in your language. This is one of those moments where we see kind of the limits of translation. Because we would read this as just a normal English reader and we would say to ourselves, this is talking about the past, but that's not what's happening here. This is a different usage of the past tense. In Greek, it's called the futuristic aorist. I know it's kind of nerding, okay? If, use that word for Scrabble, okay? If that, if that helps you win, Go for it. In the Hebrew language, it was called the prophetic perfect. Okay? The concept is actually fairly simple. Here's what the Greek mind and the Hebrew mind would see in this. These events are talked about as if they are the past. Because their certainty is just that high. So even though they are future events, this will happen. They're so certain that it will happen that they speak of it as if it's already been completed. It would be like us. If we were to, like to say, the Raiders season is over. Now the season's not over. But for the Raiders, it's over. Like the Raiders season is over in preseason. Right? When you're like, this is not going to be good. They're, when we say a phrase like, dude, they're done. Before the season is done, we're doing the same thing. That, that's a futuristic heiress, right, or a prophetic perfect. The idea is we say it as if it's a past event, even though we're referring to a future event, because we want to communicate the idea of, of certainty. I am so confident this will happen. So the reason Mary is putting her words in this way is she's trying to show those who are hearing her words and reading her words that she is so certain that this is the work that my son will do. 
And she wants to increase that level of certainty so the people receiving it would say, this is as certain as a past event that I know was already complete. So she's looking forward and saying, this will happen and it will happen with certainty. The second thing we need to see before we get into the giving and taking, we got the concept of time. It's talking about the future, but in a complete way with certainty is we need to look at the recipients, right? Who is receiving these verbs? Again, look down at your passage. Who's receiving these actions? There's several people or groups that are listed. If you look back at verse 31, we see that there is the, the proud. Verse 52, there are those who are humble. Verse 53, there is the hungry. In verse 53 again, there is the rich. In verse 54, there is those who are the servants of God. So you have this kind of list. You have the mighty, you have the rich, you have the proud, you have the humble, you have the hungry, and you have the servants of God. Now the question is, is Mary talking about six groups? I don't think she's talking about six different groups. I think she's talking about two groups. And she's kind of lumping them together and, and using several adjectives or descriptors for these groups. So there is one group that is the humble, the hungry servants of God. Then there's another group that is the rich and proud who, who are, are these, these mighty people. The rich, the proud, and the mighty. And you have the hungry and the humble um, servants of God. So there's two groups and not Six groups. This is important for us to understand because what we don't want to do is we don't want to see as if God has like this, this thing against the rich, right? Simply because they're rich. Or God favors the poor simply because they're poor. If you zoom out from the scriptures, we see this is not true, even in the writings of Luke, that Jesus had followers who were wealthy. So it's not that Jesus is against the rich. I think the greater descriptor is the proud and the humble. The proud happen to, to be those who usually have a significant amount of means. And the poor are often those who exhibit humility. Now that is not always true. But what I think Luke is presenting to us, this is often true. That when you're in a state of poverty... You're usually not arrogant because you are aware of your need frequently throughout the day. And those who have a significant amount of means have a hard time remembering their dependency upon God. So they are prone to be proud. Now again, Luke is not saying that every rich person is a prideful person or every poor person is a humble person. He's not saying that. I think what he's saying is he's, he's kind of saying that really these two big descriptors of humility and pride tend to have these other categories as well. Let, let me show you this in Luke chapter 18, because I think this is important for us to see that I think really the big descriptors, the primary uh, 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 adjectives that he's going to emphasize with these groups is not who's rich, who's poor, but rather who is pri who's prideful and who is humble. Who are the proud and who are the humble? They happen to also be these characteristics as well. But I think the primary categories for Luke are the proud and the humble. Let me show you this in Luke chapter 18. We've referred to this 
story of Jesus several times in our understanding of the writings of Luke because I think this is key in interpreting a lot of what Luke says in his gospel and what he expresses also in the book of Acts. Jesus tells this story, this is Acts chapter 18, about a man who is prideful and a man who is humble. So look at verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now this is important. A tax collector at that time would be considered rich. A tax collector wasn't somebody living at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. So right there we already see the primary indicator in this parable is not going to be about wealth. It's going to be something else. And I also want you to see as we continue through this parable that Jesus is going to tell, look at the words used and how they reflect Mary's song. When Mary talked about the humble being exalted and receiving mercy, think of that when you see these two characters described by Jesus. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mary has already said God would be merciful for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's already in the very beginning said that God is her savior, which is her admitting that she is a Sinner. So right now we see Mary's heart is reflected in this tax collector's heart. And look at the response of God to the humble. Now this man is wealthy, but he's humble. We're in verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you see this kind of great reversal that is happening. So Mary is speaking of a future time when her son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will cause a great reversal where the proud and mighty rich will be humbled and where those who are humble and hungry, servants of God, will be satisfied filled and exalted. So let's look at how Jesus Christ works with these two different groups, especially in the future when it comes to the final judgment. What does he give? What does he take away? I said in the beginning, he gives more than Santa and takes more than the Grinch. So go back to Luke chapter 1 and let's walk through the different things that he gives and takes away. We're going to start again with verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud through the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. This sense of exaltation, right, and being filled. Here's what we have to see is what Jesus is talking about is that in the end, in the great reversal, at the final judgment, 
He will give positions of authority and power, and he will give prosperity. This is something that Jesus talks about a lot when he's referring to the end or the judgment. And when he speaks about the judgment and he uses characters like faithful servants in his stories, he often will say that the reward to these faithful servants is not only entering into the joy of their master, but being over cities. We see this in Luke when Jesus tells the story of the parable of the minas or minas, however you want to uh, uh, pronounce that. When he's talking about this servant, the servant comes and, and when, when he sees that that servant has been faithful, he says, I will give you cities. We talked about this probably four or five weeks ago. Where you see the reward for faithfulness is authority and power. A more kind of famous story than that is the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, we see this pairing again where the reward for faithfulness is power or authority and prosperity. Look at this. This is Matthew chapter 25. This is told to the servant who is found to be faithful. Matthew chapter 25. I'll go there. Matthew chapter 25. It's all right. I have a Bible. We're all good. Matthew chapter 25. We'll get there together. It's fine. Matthew chapter 25. He tells this story. uh, Very, very famous story. We see people who are faithful with what they've been given. People who aren't faithful with what they've been given. There you go. Verse 23. So his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. What does that phrase mean? I will set you over much. Does he mean he's going to put him in a high chair? Top of a totem pole? No, what are you talking about? He says you've been faithful over little. He's talking about his stewardship of the money that he gave him. I gave you an investment. And you have been faithful in this. I will give you more. Now again, in Luke, very similar parable. We're told that he was given over cities. The faithful servant was given cities. And then look, go back to Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. Let's go back there. There you go. I will set you over much. And then this phrase, enter in the joy, enter into the joy of your master. So what are the gifts that the Messiah gives? He gives authority and he gives prosperity. Come enjoy what I'm doing. Come enjoy. Uh, Find value here. Look, look, Look at Go back to Luke chapter 1. We see Mary highlight this again when she speaks of, uh, of them being exalted, the humble. But she also says that God will fill the hungry with good things. She's not just referring to our stomachs being satisfied. She's saying that the hunger of our soul will be satisfied. Like imagine never having unmet expectations. Can you imagine that? Never having unmet expectations. This is what Messiah promises us after the final judgment. When we enter into the eternal state is that he will give us positions of authority and power and we will be eternally satisfied. 
That is way better than any gift that Santa could ever give. Right? The exaltation of God is better than the generosity of man. And this filling of our appetites, that's better than any prime rib or ham you've ever had during the Christmas season. Imagine being eternally satisfied. It's incredible. Christ gives greater gifts than Santa. Now, on the other side, he also takes more than the Grinch could ever take. He can inflict more loss than any credit card company can. As frightening as those uh, statements can be, they pale in comparison to the loss that can be inflicted on us by Christ himself. Let me show you this, right? This is the balanced view that Mary had. She saw this great victory, this, this, this idea of, of, of positions of power, authority, prosperity being given out. But then there's also the loss of positions of power. There is the loss of prosperity as well. If we think back even to the parable of the talents, the parable of the minas, the servant who was unfaithful, he lost the thing that he had. It was taken from him. Okay, look down again at the verbs that are used here. We're again in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That language, the idea of scattering, that, that idea is often used when it refers to God kind of defeating his enemies. It's like they have, they're making this offensive attack against him. And as they're charging towards him, he just scatters the troops. So it's almost like a, a, a victory in a defensive posture. But then there's also an offensive attack that God unleashes on his enemies. Look at the next kind of phrase that's used. He scatters them, the proud, the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. So not only does he overwhelm their advance, he dethrones them. It's almost like the defeat of the Allied powers in World War II. When they realize the only way we're going to stop this Nazi war machine is we have to invade Berlin. There is no just take back what they've taken. We have to go into the heart of their power in order to defeat them. That's the idea here. Yes, you can scatter the troops, right? You could stop the advancement of the, the Nazi war machine. But in order to actually defeat it, you got to go to its heart and kill it there. And this is what's being described here. God is not just satisfied with scattering the troops, stopping the offensive of his enemies, but he will dethrone them, take away their positions of authority and power that they have abused. And then look at where he leaves them. Look at where Messiah leaves them. He takes their power, stops their advance, Quelches the rebellion. And then in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. They move into an eternal state of despair and hunger. Forever in a place of want. If, if those who have been rewarded at the final judgment by Messiah are those who are 
satisfied and never have unmet expectations, those who are at a loss at the judgment are those who will never be satisfied, whose expectations will always be in front of them as disappointed and unmet. An eternal state of despair, an eternal state of loss. Do you see that Christ is the greatest giver and taker of the Christmas season? And he is the one doing both of these things. Right? Who is the subject of these verbs? Christ is. He scatters. He sends away empty. He dethrones. Right? The group described here that the proud, the mighty, the rich, they're not victims of unfavorable circumstances. They are facing the active opposition of Jesus Christ because they have maintained their rebellion against his rule and against his reign. And that's why they are where they are. Christ is the greatest giver and taker of Christmas. Which means our most important thing to think about during the Christmas season is not, am I on the naughty list or the nice list? Really, the biggest concern is, am I on Christ's list? Am I on the right side of Christ? Now, here's the wonderful thing. It's much different getting on Christ's list than Santa's nice list. Getting on his list is about merit. Really, the things we get from Santa aren't gifts, they're rewards. We've earned them. You've been good, you're not naughty, you're nice, therefore you have received this. But that's not how we are on the receiving end of good things when it comes to Christless. His gift to us is just that. It's a gift. Right? A reward is something you work for. A gift is something that somebody else has worked for. You don't merit your way on this list. You get on Christ's list by pleading for his mercy. And my hope this Christmas season is that's what you'll see, or is that's what you'll receive. Is that you will be on Christ's list, that you will receive the wonderful things that Mary talked about. That you will be exalted from a humble estate. That you will be filled and never be hungry. That's what I want for you. That you as a servant of God will be helped. And getting on Christ's list is as simple as, as ABC. I don't mean to insult you by making it easy. But this is what the scriptures express to us. If that we admit that we're a sinner, we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and we confess him as the Lord of our life, that's how we receive the mercy of God. And that's what I hope you'll receive this Christmas season. Because the gift you get in a box, right, that's wrapped with a bow and has a nice card, you know and I know that thing's going to go to goodwill in a couple of years anyways. 
Or you're going to re-gift it to your pastor and say it's new. (laughs) I want you to open that gift. That's what I want. Because that is what will satisfy. You can't beat that gift. (laughs) I don't want you to miss out on that gift. Now maybe as, as a follower of Christ, you've already made that decision to align yourself with Jesus, to follow him. Here's my encouragement to you. You have to see this journey of faith as a long one. Because the great reversal that Mary sung about is so far away. Being lifted up, helped, and filled, those are future things. You don't always feel them right now. You always have them right now. I mean, there are hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of Christians who will die in a state of poverty, weakness, and under the oppression of the proud. They have to hold on, and we have to hold on, that the great reversal is not till the end. And having that hope, holding on to that, man, that's hard. It is hard to hold on to that when you're feeling weak, when you're feeling you're at a loss, when you feel nothing of satisfaction, when you're holding on to your faith and you're being maybe ridiculed for it, or you're losing out on promotions because of the character that you know is demanded of you by Jesus Christ. When you feel like you're at a loss in your following, it is hard to hold on. Maybe as you're approaching the Christmas season and you're thinking about all of those at the table who should be there but aren't there, right? All the missing chairs is what we call them, right? All the people who aren't around the table. And you think to yourself, why, Lord? Like, why? Why do I feel this ache when everybody is singing and, and, and the lights are all bright around my neighborhood, but inside is, is loss and is darkness. I am grieving. It is hard To hold on to hope. To hold on to say one day Messiah will reverse all of this. And I won't be hungry anymore. And I won't be in a humbled state. And I won't be lacking and in need. And I won't be weak. It's hard to hold on to get there. And as I was writing the last bit of this message... I was, I was feeling just a, a, a pastoral concern that I thought, man, if we ended this message with a, just have more hope, just be more hopeful, you can do it, that that would be insensitive and just uncaring. So I want to do something a little bit different. Because I know I've learned this in my Christian life, that hope isn't just something I'm required to produce in myself, but hope is something that the Holy Spirit produces in me. Yes, I'm commanded to place my hope in Jesus Christ. I'm commanded to look forward in the future. I'm commanded to do those things. That is true. But when I can't do those things, I can lean on the fact that God can work that hope 
in me. And I don't know everybody's story in this room. I really wish I, I really wish I could. I really wish I did. But I know several stories in this room. I don't know many of you are going through a hard time right now. And so reading Mary's song about all this great work that her son was going to do, maybe right now that just feels so far away. So I want to pray a blessing on you that the Holy Spirit would work hope in you. The passage I want to pray over you is found at the very end of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, this is the, um, the prayer when I was thinking of you as I was writing the last bit of this message. The, the scripture is this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Very similar language to just kind of what we've already encountered, right? God of hope filling you with joy that language of enter into the joy of your master, filling you with joy, knowing that you do not have anything that hinders your relationship with God. You can have intimacy with him. Why? Because he is a God of peace. He has brought peace by the violence of the cross. He has brought us peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And he fills you. So what's the result? What happens after that? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Okay, so this is how we're going to end. Now this may be new for for some of you and that's okay. We're going to enter into this this space together. I'm going to ask you to just, to do a physical posture not because it's magical or anything like that. Simply because it's just a reflection of the posture of your heart. So here's what I want you to do. I'm, I'm going to bow my head. I'm going to close my eyes here in a moment. I'm going to extend my hand out toward you. As a sense of just kind of a symbol of, of, of pronouncing a blessing upon you. And here's what I ask you to do when I do that. I, I want to ask you to, to take kind of a receiving posture. And what I mean by that is this. I want you to to close your eyes here in a moment, just so you have focus, so you can focus on the words that I'm saying. And I invite you to do this. While you do that, while your eyes are closed, I invite you just to open your arms like this. You can place them on your, on your lap, however you want to do that. And just a posture of receiving the blessing that I'm pronouncing upon you. Again, there's nothing magical in this. It's a physical posture of our heart. It's like when we get on one knee and we pop the question, why do we do that? Because this is a, it's a posture that reflects our heart. It's a, it's a physical gesture that shows that we're asking for something that is of great value to us. We want this person to commit their lives to us and we are committing to serve them. And so that's kind of what I'm asking you to do. Not get on one knee, but to receive this blessing and let that posture just be a posture of your heart. So church family, I invite you to close your eyes, to focus, to open your hands and to receive this blessing, this prayer 
over you. May the God of peace, may the God of joy, may the mighty God who has conquered all of our foes, the mighty God who has rescued us from ourselves, the one who has freed us from the captivity of Satan, who has broken the bonds, the shackles that kept us down in our despair and our depression and under judgment and under shame. May the God who has liberated you from yourself, who has freed you from your own wickedness, who has delivered you from a corrupt heart, may the God who has given you a treasure chest full of joy, the God whose throne right next to it there are the pleasures evermore, the God who has prepared a banquet for you in the future, the God who prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. The God who in the darkest of times and the deepest of valleys is the God who shines forth light and lifts you up. May the God who exalts the humble, the God who fills the hungry, the God who helps his servant, may he grant you hope. May you persevere and carry on even though the terrain is hard. Even though the loss is significant. Even though the pain is agonizing. Even though your weakness is crippling. May you know when you cannot carry on, may you be certain that he will carry you. May you be certain that he will carry you. May you be certain that he will carry you. Amen.